This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And I'm here, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we've got Michael Fuller on the 3D Pod. Uh, Michael Fuller is uh, the founder of Conflux Technology. And Conflux, well, Michael started in like Formula One and making kind of heat exchangers and, and heat management um, products. And he did this for like the Formula One and, and, and very kind of high-end applications. And then he uh, returned to his native uh, Australia and then started Conflux to, to kind of industrialize and manufacture uh, heat management uh, products with, uh, yeah, with 3D printing, with powder bath fusion. And they recently got investment, and I think it's one of the most exciting startups in, in 3D printing. And uh, so I'm really happy to have Michael here. Welcome to the show, Michael. Yeah, thanks very much, Joris. Nice to be with you both. Yeah. So, so first off, I mean, uh, so how did so heat exchange, heat exchangers, and things like that? That that's a well. It's 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 one of these. things. It seems like a niche, but there's like billions of them. <laughs> so it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind go. of like a very present kind of technology that not a lot of people see, right? That's right. That's an unnecessary fundamental to. Uh, to our civilization as we know it and that's uh-huh. the um the transfer of heat um really so if you imagine all of the machines in the world in order to keep operating they um to do what they do they need to generally convert energy from one form to another and then in the process of converting the energy from one form to another they um or doing work they'll produce heat or either require heat to be put into them and that exchange of heat in or out of that system if you draw a dotted line around it requires a heat exchanger so mm-hmm. if you imagine car radiators if you imagine heat sinks on microprocessors if you imagine um, air conditioning systems um, and 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 it goes on and on so they're quite ubiquitous but they're definitely as you say uh, unsung and no one apart from heat transfer mm-hmm. engineers um, really mm-hmm. knows much about them yeah, and they're, they're one of the most ubiquitous things on Earth, and for include like a MOSFET type of things and stuff like that. So that it's the interesting thing about that is that that well, so how did you end up in in this kind of ne- uh, the area, this neck of the woods? I mean, it's not like a normal major or normal kind of a career path or a very popular one. No, but I think it was pretty much a um, a combination of factors. So my um, family reasons brought me back from from Europe um, for a permanent sort of a permanent stay. I'd I'd, I'd moved back. Um, uh, and was doing sort of six months here, six months in Europe for a couple of years at the tail end, but then it was quite clear that um, it, was, it was time to be back in Australia full-time. And, um, and you know, I'd done a classic sort of felt a pain point, had early adopter exposure to, to industrial 3D printing or additive manufacturing, and I was a design engineer. And, you know, like most designs that I may have... Uh, can be pretty much stricken off early on, um, but this one was just good enough for me to be foolish enough to to tip some dough into it to see if I could actually uh, prove out the technical feasibility of the idea. So designed it. Uh, there's a local print service bureau in Melbourne that um, was spun out of a university. They had a crack at at building this first off prototype. After a few failures figured out uh, together we figured out how to how to build it and I still have that piece in the conflux offices and it's it's a, a fantastically crude 
uh, immature design, but uh, at the time it was it wowed enough for me to to um, set up some testing, uh, some calorimetric testing, which tests the heat transfer um, efficiency of the device and the and the pressure drop, so the the resistance to the flow of the two fluids. And you know, as luck would have it, I mucked up the test and it gave me false positive readings. So that was also <laughs> that was also enough enough to convince me to carry on. Um, and if and if I had have tested it correctly, perhaps Conflux wouldn't exist. <laughs> Seriously. So, like, yeah. uh, did it when you retested it at some point? Was it not even remotely close to what you thought yeah, the efficiency yeah, was? Yeah, or, it was, wow. yeah, it was. It was. It was <laughs> Oh wow! Well, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's kind of one of those startup stories where you need there's a necessary delusion, otherwise, uh, you right? Do it. No, totally. And, it all starts then, with either. Uh, believing too much in yourself or too little in others, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Both. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what what we what was clear from the outset was that it was, um, it was an obvious an obvious symbiotic technology and need a use case. So heat exchangers. So in in general, aside from the fact that the technology, the laser powder bed fusion technology at the time was very um, uh, very geared towards much um i don't know thicker walls and lower resolution the potential of it and the the, the maturity technology the technology maturity curve you could say was it was de- going to develop in these ways and and why it was fundamentally good is because heat exchangers derive their performance from their geometry am was able to provide a new set of geometry geometric constraints Due to the, the the nature of the process, and so really being able to to prove that it could work, that you could get some sort of structures that would keep the two fluids separate from one another and not bleed or leak between one fluid domain and another, and actually transfer heat, and, you know, this was a big win. Uh, the fact that it didn't come out of the blocks and blow everything away to begin with um, would have dissuaded many, but for me, uh, like I said, I uh, mucked up the test, so I cracked on. <laughs> And um, pretty pretty soon after, like, all right, well, we we definitely need to have, I definitely need to have a team around me, people that perhaps are, are a little less delusional. And I know nothing about finance. I know nothing about the commercial marketing side of things, and I know nothing about, um, you know, operations. But I know enough to to know that I need those gaps filled. So I brought on some co-founders who actually there's another aspect to Conflux. Is an experiment uh, in going against the grain of companies, you know, where people say never work with your friends and family. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I've just sort of thrown that out, and um, having <laughs> I, I work with, I think there's 14 of us, and there's a, a handful of people that we've employed that I haven't known before, but they've now become friends, and I work with um, people that I've known for 20 years. Okay. So far, so far, it's been a, a terrific experiment in in community and um and and also culture development it's a rare occasion you get to start a, a company culture from scratch and a clean sheet i had my yeah. brother who happens to be a cultured a business culture development coach who's been curating uh, and helping us curate the culture from the start as well okay so how, yeah, how long has it been going for now oh look i think that first failed test was sometime in 2015 16 and then, uh, yeah, so it's 2015, 
and then um, I spent 2016 developing the technology further. This is, you know, working bootstrapping by myself, um, 2016 developing it further and then raising seed capital. So traveling the world, trying to get someone to, to buy what I'm selling and then also raising seed capital and, and AM Ventures, who I'm sure you both know. Um, they invested in Conflux, Conflux at the seed round, but that deal didn't close until middle of 2017. So I would say really the, the start of the company when I started paying myself a wage was in 2017 um, and brought on the, the, the launch team in the, the tail end of 2017. Uh, it's an interesting way to to do, to do it, an interesting way to to create a business around that. But it, but you had clients quite early as well, right? So clients that would come to you, kind of like to do projects and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it was apparent to me that the way that we needed to, the way that I wanted to build the business was was not a um, pump up the hype and raise just relentlessly raise next round and next round and next round of investment capital, venture capital. Um, of course, we'd need venture capital and growth capital to, to fulfill the, the growth ambitions, but really there's some milestones that we wanted to hit. One of the early ones is, you know, is someone willing to pay for what, you, for what you're selling or what you're offering? Is there, is there intrinsic value in this model business out with a, um, effectively a, a three-phase approach? And the first phase, and this is for the, for the initial life of this business, the first phase was was a service revenue model primarily where um, we had an expertise. We had more knowledge than the next person, even though it, um, it's still pretty nascent and we were learning as we, as we were going as well um, because all of the use cases were coming to us from customers. And with each use case, there's you know, this inherent benefit from AM because you don't have sort of barriers to innovation like tooling investment costs uh, when you make design changes. Uh, which is inherent in, in many of the other manufacturing techniques for heat exchanges. So we were able to approach and be approached by many different industries and take fundamental heat transfer, sort of first principles calculations uh, and solve problems from first principles combined with our, our design for AM and growing um, design for AM experience because we also I also assembled a team that was cross-disciplinary, albeit in very um, engineering terms, um, cross-disciplinary, where we had calculations engineers and, and heat transfer, those principles calculations engineers working with design engineers as well as AM process engineers. So we've got an, M, an M290, uh, EOS M290 system in-house, and we really you know, got deep under the hood and, um, and continue to really drive the drive the the process parameters um so each of our design has a each of our designs have specific process parameters for them um and they can't be built in a plug and play sort of fashion we really need to develop the processes for for the structural geometry as well as for um improving productivity and is that that's still phase one let's say what was on the the second yeah, phase of the business yeah so phase one was this um service dominated revenue streams you could say about 85% services and 15% goods revenues. And phase two is what we're transitioning to now. So we've raised a, a Series A round, closed that relatively recently, but through the pandemic actually, because we couldn't travel. All of our customers are in North America and Europe and up in Asia. So not traveling 
particularly challenging sure. because we could, you know, couldn't get in front of customers. As strange <laughs> as it may seem, but people buy from people, and it's hard to espouse the virtues of a heat exchanger when um, when you're showing <laughs> through a webcam. <laughs> what what industries though are tending to go for this? I mean, heat exchangers are literally everywhere, as you said at the beginning. But yeah. who is who's picking it up first for in the additives, like going like oh, I need yeah. specialized customs and I, what yeah. kind of volumes as well are they are they looking at when they're, yeah, when so they're look, doing it's, it's, well? it's definitely a case of twenty eighteen and nineteen we were seeing you know, people coming to us with two ingredients were common across everyone and one of them was a curiosity about AM and another was a heat heat exchange or heat transfer problem space or opportunity and in 2018 the 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 interest the, the sort of ratio of those two was was much more in the curiosity about am so r&d budgets a number in 2019 people were coming and saying look our cto's told us that we need to we need to get across this technology we need to know what it is and what it isn't um is it is it a, a relevant thing now um and the and the, the industries that people were coming from uh, had quite a lot of um, much larger heat exchange companies. So, you know, the, um, the ones that are in the sort of multiple billions of dollar market cap industrial businesses um, in the tiered supply chain, as well as OEMs um, in uh, aerospace and automotive and general industrial, you could say, as well as microelectronics. So big server farms are are always looking for, for ways to improve their, say, volumetric efficiency of their plant, their real estate. Where else? Oh, defence sector. Um, right. As, oh. uh, there, I mean, there's loads. We get IC. The chemical, chemical processing industry. And uh, IC, is, right? Or making yeah. of semiconductors and stuff as well? Yeah, so the, the IT. So the microelectronics, I sort of I use that term, but it covers off the semiconductor industry. Um, not just the semiconductor end use themselves, but the manufacturing tools to make them. And this is the thing: is that you know, you, when I say every machine in the world, it's like every machine that makes every machine as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. Um, it's yeah, it's significant. So I don't think we'll be as we hopefully exit from from the sort of more restricted uh, engagements through you know government limitations on travel and this, that, and the other. I think we'll find that there's more and more um, industries that are coming around, and as we're finding now, we're we're dealing less with R and D departments, although that's still there. So the service business model's still there, but the second phase really is a is a productization phase. So we've got a number of families of products where we've found through the course of the first phase of the business, there's there's certain families that are particularly and use cases that are particularly. Uh, well suited to AM because strange as it may, may seem, AM doesn't defy the laws of physics, and the heat transfer fluids don't really care if they're um, if they're going through an AM heat exchanger or a different heat exchanger. You know, the performance will be will be what it will be. And so we've got a number of use cases where we've said, okay, here's actually some clear families of products. But what AM can bring is uh, is an infinite infinite configurability between certain limits. Sometimes those limits might be build volume limits or heat exchangers some some radiators for example you know like a car radiator this is quite often a necessarily large um, frontal area the the size of the thing is just not conducive or the economics don't stack up where you've got a 
an incumbent technology which is very well empirically developed over time, um, incrementally over time, and you've got very high performance and it's maybe a boring looking thing, but it's cheap and it performs well or well enough. And so procurement departments are, are then making value judgments based on um, a car radiator might cost an OEM 27 or, or, or 30 dollars when they're building them at 200 and 400,000 units per annum and AM's just not suitable to that um, definitely not now hasn't been and is still not now uh, because the thing might be 600 meters 600 millimeters square something like that and 50 or 60 millimeters deep and so it's just not suitable to AM so we haven't developed a, a family of car radiators because it's just not a good product technology fit. But so the, the heat exchangers that you are developing, are they heat exchangers that can only ever be printed? Or if, if the volume justifies it, can, can you center them or use some no, other process? They're only able to be manufactured via laser powder bed, actually. I mean, unless well, someone will come up with a technology that I haven't thought of, but not that I'm aware of now. So getting the densities that we need uh, for gas tight structures, having them printed as a green part and then um, and then the management of the green part as well as trying to remove remove the, the powder that you don't want. Uh, it doesn't really work, you know, like we're talking about sub 200 micron features and sub 200 micron feature distances with internal complicated geometry. Um, and this is not really, um, it's not really, possible any other way to get these structures gas tight and um and robust you know mm -hmm. it's very important for for conducting along the material along the the solid structure that the structure is as highly dense as possible and also the connections between features is very uh is very robust we've had to focus in on laser powder bed fusion but you know like in laser powder bed fusion there's a a number of really fascinating technologies that are that are coming down the pike now, and are also are also going to roll out further in the future as competition comes in. I think with um, like supremely high productivity, much more than we're seeing today. Yeah, I think so. But okay, just uh, I think we need to take a couple steps back. I mean, you've got a heat sink, right? Which mm -hmm. could be metal or aluminum, whatever. Right? Yeah, so it doesn't, multiple, doesn't, matter on, yeah. doesn't matter what yeah. the material is to us. We're pretty agnostic. We just do it based on the boundary conditions. Oh, I'm just saying for the people listening that, that there's a heat sink, right, which is just a metal thing in air, if you will, or multiple material metal, right? Could be ceramics as well. And then there's a heat exchanger, which is, is, is essentially it has multiple pathways in it that exchange where air, hot air kind of heats adjacent uh, cold air in a, in a different uh, and a different pipe or body or something like that, right? So that's the difference here. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that the, the umbrella term of heat exchanger covers everything, but yes, there are mm -hmm. different embodiments, like a heat sink will be primarily a conduction to convection, so offer, mm -hmm. offer, C, offer CPU or offer microtrip, which is, you know, like uh, cranking and working as hard as it can, and it produces heat, and it, it'll stop working if you don't take the heat away. So you conduct it up into a heat sink, and then... Either through natural convection or, or forced convection, you'll blow air over the heat sink and those fins that you see in the computers. That then transfers the heat to the to the air and then up to our, ultimately to atmosphere. Whereas, a, mm -hmm. a, sorry, do you consider a Peltier junction as well a heat exchanger? Or? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, okay. it's, lit yeah. it's literally any time there is a transfer of heat from one space to another, and ultimately it's going to atmosphere. Uh, and it might the the heat might need to be transferred from from one place to another, and then to another, and then to another. So, in a in a vehicle, for example, you might have a a heat exchanger that is transferring heat from uh, engine oil um, into the coolant um, water, which pumps around the engine. Uh, you might also have a, a, a third fluid domain, which might be a, trans, a gearbox transmission fluid transferring the heat from the from the gearbox into the, the coolant. And then the coolant goes in and around the engine, and then it goes to the radiator, and ultimately the heat ends up going to atmosphere. It may also go over, like in an electric vehicle, it may also go over an inverter and, and be a, a taking heat directly from the chips or it might go through the battery. Um, and ultimately it all needs to end up in atmosphere. Um, and so the conversion, the heat transfer from one fluid to another or from one um, non-fluid from the heat source to to um to the fluids, these are all done via heat exchangers, which might be a heat sink or it might be a, a liquid to air radiator. It might be a through a vapor chamber, vapor chamber using a phase change um, cycle, evaporative cycle, and and there's many embodiments. So I like the the geometry, and I think I think uh, you actually explained this to me at uh, one point earlier as well. There's, so there's one thing is that we can change geometry to optimize the heatsink, but we can also change the geometry at different points in the heatsink, right? Or in the yeah, heat that's, that's exactly right. And that's where our products do really shine. You can have, and not in all cases is it necessary, but in some cases you can vary the geometry through the fluid domain. So as the fluid itself changes thermal physical properties because of its, um, it might be getting hotter or it might be getting less dense or more dense or whatever it may be, as it's passing through this device, exchanging heat with another fluid, and fluids cover gases and liquids. Um, but as its as its physical properties are changing, so its thermal conductivity changes depending on its temperature or its density. You can adapt the geometry to suit, and this is one of the key advantages for for AM. And it's probably where people um, sometimes look at the outside of our products and go this doesn't look particularly amy wamy you know whereas all the twisty <laughs> twisty curves and whatnot and like i said before the um the heat transfer fluids don't care about that they um if if, if you if you're not hitting the right surface area if you're not hitting the right sort of geometry that that drives um high heat flux uh which is you know the the um the flow of heat if you're trying to push something through a, a gyroid, for example. I mean, there's so many um, applications for gyroids should be forgiven for thinking they didn't solve the world's problems. But the, the, the fluids themselves just, um, just don't care. So if we're able to take advantages with the internal geometry evolving through the fluid domain, and, and it's, this is the thing that will give us the most, the most efficient heat transfer, um, you know, in terms of heat transfer for a pressure drop, ratio for example then um and that's what we do and so okay. these product uh, lines that we've got don't necessarily look uh as sexy as as some other products but they work but they work yeah and so they work and they're independently tested now you know we've got um some really great data points on on back-to-back -back tests not with other am heat exchangers but with with world's best practice um 
with technologies that have been you know empirically evolved over over the 150 years or so since the industrial revolution and we are against those ones we are better in double digit percentages on the measurable measurable points um, and now with a lot of the work that we've done internally on um, productivity we're now able to to hit some some really competitive price points as well but competitive price points for well very niche things i would assume because there is still a huge price gap between between even like a smaller object there's still like a you know we're still a couple of zeros off mostly right most definitely so this is competitive price points against the the um the ultimate so you know where the the, the low volume high value markets mm-hmm. are still the ones that we necessarily need to approach so we're not, we're not selling the the promise of of hundreds of thousands of units at, at dollars per unit that's that's mm-hmm. not the business that we're in currently um, mm-hmm. and we will need to keep pushing the technology which we do and pushing this uh, the other market players and market accelerators around the technology so there's the the physical aspects of the process um literally at the melt pool how quickly can the the heat dissipate through into the structure how quickly can you process the the materials and there's still plenty of speed to come there the fundamental architecture of the machines there's plenty of speed to come there but there are still going to be limits and so what are some of the other factors with regard to mass production and that is um, the prices the prices of the machines you know like if you if you hit physical limits on on a particular machine speed then you kind of need two machines uh to 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 take the next sort of out the, the two times output but the two times output needs to be possible with a with a half times cost on the machine yeah but okay so we're coming to a point where if you want to go further then we need automation. We need to greatly speed up the machines and stuff. But I, I yeah, always thought, okay, the machine speed is a big problem, but there's some machines like that you have to uh, retool it for four or five hours before you can start it up again. I mean, I thought that kind of stuff was, in an immediate sense, more of a problem now. You know what I mean? It's, it, there's other stuff to do, right? Yeah, yeah, completely. So when I say machines, I'm talking about the process really. Uh, and so like a, a cycle time. And this is getting into the series production type stuff, where, where you know, cycle time is the is the thing that is the ultimate measure of potential for for a technology being adopted. And we need to produce things um, in such a time that any sort of subsequent processes are, uh, are still able to be done in the shadow. So if you of the of the subsequent build in this case, um, but if you've got multiple machines, then you sub you know you need to start designing out requirements for post-processing so um, there's always you know excruciating engineering trade-offs and compromises that need to be made mm-hmm. where for us you know heat treating certain materials in certain ways improves thermal conductivity uh, as one of the things that, are, that, that the heat treatment cycle improves along, along with residual stress relieving and all that sort of jazz but um the processing time May mean that we actually say so actually we'll we'll be able to we'll be able to hit that sort of target of, of heat transfer that this heat heat treatment process might bring us. We can achieve that with sort of these trade offs in in geometry or these changes to the geometry, uh, and then if we can do that, then without needing to heat treat, then we per each each unit then doesn't have maybe a three hour cycle uh, mm-hmm. added added to its um to its process. 
And if we can do that, then we look at that. So we sort of need to, we necessarily need to look at all of these sort of factors. I, th- I think that, that's also quite interesting. And also you could also look at things like the Quintus thing, which like does what the, the pressure hip thing, which is faster, you know, there are other alternatives to that as well. But it's interesting that you're looking at the, from a design stage at the entire process, which I think is really other people just try to, st- to speed up the existing steps, which may not be uh, you know, the right thing. Yeah, to it, has to, it has to be considered in totality. You know, if we're able to process, you know, sometimes sometimes you strike across a, you know, like a really lucky um, blend of, of of things. So we've got some recent. I mean, it's, it's still, I would, it's still in our R and D department, um, but we're now processing processing geometries in particular ways that result in both a thinner wall and uh, and a higher productivity. So being able to do that is like a, a double win, and it's everyone's high fiving each other, and we're able to to do you know uh, that ultimately means a lighter weight or higher performing heat exchanger built mm-hmm. um, with less cost. Yeah, no, but also like mass is, is a huge factor in cost as well, and 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 on top of that, the the uh, thinner walls is a key determinant of, uh, of of heat exchanger performance, right? It's one of the strong ones, yeah, for sure, because what it does if you can get the walls thinner. If you imagine, you know, for heat transfer, you might need us to to get one fluid out at a particular temperature, and and it started its inlet temperature was was X, and it needs to come out at Y, and the other one's got it its inlet temperature, and so you want to transfer the heat between these two fluids. You're going to need to have for that target outlet temperature, you need to have a certain square um, square area of heat transfer surface area. For a given thermal conductivity of the fluid, blah blah blah. Basically, you take that and let's say it's um, eight square meters of surface area, um, albeit eight square meters broken down into lots and lots and lots of smaller features and packed into a very small volume. Total together eight square meters, and then you extrude that through the thickness of the wall, and that's that's the that's the volume, and then you have the density of the material, and there's your weight. Um, yeah, so if yeah. you can halve the thickness of these of these features then for the same surface area you can half the weight perfect that's perfect it's a huge uh, cost thing as well yeah and and, and then do you also like look at like so one of these other things is really critical is this pressure drop thing what is that because that's a bit exotic to most people i think also yeah so basically is just the measure of the resistance to the flow of the fluid it's measured in what was the pressure before the, the device and what's the pressure after and so this is in heat transfer or heat exchanger um, in the heat exchanger industry, which, by the way, is you know measured in the many, many tens of billions of dollars per annum. So it's a it's a big industry that sort of self-identifies in in, in that way. The, it's a normal it's a normal language, but basically it means you know, if you put a resistance in a flow, um, it's true with electrical as well as as well as fluids. Um, then you'll get a pressure drop across the flow. To keep the flow going, you need to put work in to overcome that pressure drop or to mm-hmm. overcome the resistance. That's all it is. From mm-hmm. a system point of view, the higher the resistance, the bigger the pump that you need. The bigger the pump, the more energy. So the total system may be less efficient because you've put too much resistance to the flow. Yeah. So if I can optimize those pathways to optimal geometry or optimal textures or whatever, then that could also increase my performance then. Yeah, this is a, a, a classic trade-off as well because the basically the more surface area you have in a in a given volume, 
the higher the resistance will be, but the higher the heat transfer will be. So mm-hmm. trying to m- make the most efficient use of the geometry that you have is one of the keys. And this is where fundamentally this is the rub with additive manufacturing is that you can, you can, you've got new geometric constraints, new design constraints that, um, or design opportunities that you can, you can improve that heat transfer to, to pressure drop or to flow resistance straight off. And also, of course, like the, the low volume manufacturing is, is, is key. I, I like textures. I, I love the idea of, of, of increasing uh, heat exchange through te- textures and stuff like that. I don't know if that's no, something you guys like microfluidic. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, massively is part of what we do. So if you can imagine, um, you know, you've got an inherent roughness with the process, which, you know, can be tweaked and tuned within certain limitations depending on the process parameters that you use and the, the geometry with respect to the orientation of how it's built. Um, but you have some, some key benefits to, to this sort of roughness because the roughness is, is adding, you know, sometimes double digits of percentages of surface area um, over a, a clean, smooth um, component. Um, but also you then have, you know, you have wall effects, fluid, fluid to wall effects that can increase the resistance to the flow. But what we find is that we often need to develop three-dimensional surface geometry. So it's sort of not just the, the process roughness, but we'll induce further roughness with small features that might induce vortices and all sorts of things like that. But when it comes to microfluidics, it's really, it gets super fascinating when we're really down at the at the very small feature distances and where surface roughness is the same order of magnitude as feature distance um you then get some really not all, not all the time but some some fluid domains or fluid boundary conditions you get some really interesting non-newtonian effects in fluids as well mm-hmm. yeah i think i think that's exciting because that means that uh, like if you would be able to reduce wall slip right or change it at will as well which could also be interesting right you could maybe increase it which is like in your context, maybe a good uh, thing like that could lead to like, you know, kind of IP, you know, you could have like an optimal shape. You could have like whatever, a golf ball shape and that could be the best shape for, for reducing a wall slip effect or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So our, our patent portfolio is, is dominated by design patents. So <laughs> that's um, not so much around processes. A lot of that's software driven. So the patent protection around software is a, different sort of beast but um yeah a lot of it's around the designs that we have and, and covering off mm-hmm. um, covering off how the heat exchanger itself actually works because what is your technology like as a startup like a lot of people talk about having a technology in your sense okay there's these design patterns right yes. um you know but what else and there's a, a very specific expertise at the moment a very a rare expertise as well what other things would you like classes being like your technology let's say Oh, look, so there, yeah, there's the patent portfolio, but our IP also extends into things as mundane as managing the file sizes. So, um, how do we, how do we go about, uh, actually, how do we go about designing these things and, and going from a concept through a simulated, a simulated, like a multi-physics simulated process and then preparing, um, build files and, and actually getting the builds happening. Um, now, this, if you take one of our heat exchangers and you just try and model it in, um, in your high-end CAD systems like Siemens NX or Dassault Systems 3D Experience, these sorts of high-end ones, um, they can't handle it. Then if you try and do the multi-physics simulations and 
and mesh them in ANSYS or, or, or similar, um, uh, even on very high performance supercomputers, they really do struggle because, like I said, we're talking about these very small, very small features mapped across relatively large build volumes relative to the to the feature sizes. So, I mean, I just a, a classic, simple challenge is to anyone who who's able to to prepare a build file for a um, an AM platform that has has like I don't know three hundred by three hundred by three hundred millimeter build volume. Try and array something that's a couple of hundred microns, uh, a, a little cross piece or something that's a couple of hundred microns in a lattice, and then array that across in a, as a solid model. Um, and it's a simple thing that should be on the surface. It looks like it should be easy to do, but then it just um, really does clap out the software and yeah, uh, all the way along the data chain. So we've got a number of, of proprietary processes that we've had to develop there. We've developed processes to, to analyze. We use, um, in our R&D, in our process development work, we use uh, a, a beam accelerator, which is here in Melbourne, so a synchrotron. Um, and we work with the Australian government body that, that owns and operates that, that synchrotron to do high definition and, and, and fast CT scanning. But then that also comes up with massive, massive data sets, you know, scan a heat exchanger to the resolution that we need so that we can identify critical defects and that we can see process parameters that might need to change and, uh, and we can look at porosity and all that sort of thing. That produces tens and tens of terabytes of sliced TIFF files um, and putting them back together, let alone then reading through them and looking for these critical defects and, you know, we want to actually take these images and, and quantify them. So we've had to develop a, s a suite of software tools that can automate the reading through and identification of um, so it's effectively machine learning or, or, or AI, you could say, that identifies critical defects in the, in the structures and is able to recreate the three-dimensional as-built structures. We're able to measure and quantify surface roughnesses and tie these to the process parameters. We're able to, to get global porosity, poor density distributions. So all of these things, the, the tools weren't weren't there. So we've had to create them and this also also forms part of our part of our proprietary background IP really. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? Uh, as you move into this next phase? Are you hoping this will last a year or two and then you move on to the third phase or what are your uh, no I would say that this will be this will be a little while. So this product productization really is where we We'll kick our stride with the manufacturing. There's a lot to be proven out with, with the series production. There's a lot of cost to be driven out still, and we can we've identified ways and and means to to get there. But it'll take a little while, I would say. We've got more machines to come in, but we've also got a lot of new technology platforms that we need to we need to to prove out. Um, and I would say that um, the, the next phase will be um, majority us manufacturing in-house and then uh, starting to experiment with the third phase, which would be sort of more of a, a, a licensed manufacturing model. But there's a lot of work to be done there. We know how, <laughs> how much is, is how fickle the technology can be. You know, we're talking about third decimal place in millimetres on, on the setup of the machine. Even after you've 
done your calibration and you've done all of that sort of thing that might need to, to happen and keep it within its drift limits and all that sort of stuff, you then you still have, um, you know, uh, we, we can change a, a beam offset a setting by single-digit microns um, and this can make the difference between a, a heat exchanger that is holding pressure up to, you know, the acceptable limits and proof pressure for a particular circumstance and one that just has some um, that leaks like a sieve you know like it's a very fickle process and the controls around it that are required are uh, extremely stringent um and so you can't just send it down to the to the corner service bureau wow well that's oh. very cool that's a yeah. very uh fun stuff to look forward to yeah, yeah it's very really cool. fascinating and and yeah, thank you for being here, Michael. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, no worries. I hope that um, I hope that you found the conversation uh, relatively interesting, not too dry. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's good. I always find thermodynamics stimulating. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it makes your threshold for enjoyable podcasting, I'm happy. <laughs> no, no, no. This is exactly what our audience want, right? And uh, exactly, yeah, thank- we're, we're the nerdiest podcasters. <laughs> 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 anyway, and, and Max, thank you for being here as well. Always, right. thank you, Joe. And thank you guys for listening. This is another 3D Pod, and my name is Joris Peels. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard, or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.